This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from business to history, science, and your stories. And send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and our team will listen to them, and we'll produce them, and we'll send them back out at you. You are the hour in Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about redemption. And today we have Chris Buckley's story, a man who's lived a life filled with hate and anger. Chris Buckley's life began with an absent father. You know, him and my mom would fight a lot, and I often refer to my, my childhood as like a, like a constant revolving door of drunken bar fights that I was like a fly on the wall to. When I was young, I was angry at the fact that, you know, like all the other kids, you know, they they had a dad. I, I didn't have that. My dad would come home drunk maybe once every week or so, pass out on the couch, and before he'd leave out the next day, like, I would get my, my you know, regular whipping. I remember the first time I played football, my grandma came. You know, like, everybody's dads were out there, like, cheering for their kid, and, and you know, I had my... My 60-year-old grandma was out there doing a puzzle book because she had no interest in football. She was just there because she loved me. Fishing trips seemed like a chore to him. He didn't get into the fact that he was with me. He wanted to go and drink beer with his buddies. Um, my dad eventually sobered up, but by that time the resentment was there. So it just like this angry relationship where it was just like that you could cut tension with a knife anytime we were in the same room. I was angry at, at my childhood. Uh, you know, I, I went through some things with uh, a very close family member, and you know, I don't, I don't want to get into that too much. But you know, it really it messed with me. But you know, there's just there was there's so many little things that at the time, you know, it was just you just shut them out, and then as you get older, you realize that you know they didn't go away. You know, you need to deal with them, and and you know, it was just it was fear of dealing with those. It was anger of the things that I was subjected to. Maybe I was angry that I didn't have control over it. I was just a very angry person, and it, and it stemmed from early in my childhood. Our traumas can start at a very young age. And if we do not learn to deal with those, they never really go away. It can affect us no matter how hard we try to shove them down. So, how did Chris deal with all his traumas? And where is he at with that now? It's been a tumultuous journey filled with hate, anger, and bitterness. But also, one of love, forgiveness, and an unexpected friendship. Chris was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, before moving to Southern Ohio to a town called MacArthur. I went to high school there, and uh, by that point, I was, I was really resentful. Um, I started getting in trouble a lot. And I remember one of the recruiters from the Army came to my school, and uh, it was really more of a, an attempt for me to just get out of class for the day. <laughs> and uh, I went and took the ASVAB test, and I, I scored you know, pretty good on it. You know, he, he started pursuing me pretty hard after that, and you know, I looked at it as a way to get out. I was like, you know, they take care of everything. School, room and board, pay. I mean, really all I got to do is just show up and uh, I'm taken care of. So so I joined the Army, and, you know, 13 years of my life was spent doing that. Um, that was in 2000 when I joined. 
you know, the military indoctrinates you for whatever fight you're involved in at the time. Obviously, we were engaged in the war on terror and focused on, on you know, targeting people of Muslim ethnicity. You know, I never shot at a paper target or, or interrogated a an actor that wasn't, you know, a traditional Muslim with uh, the garb and, and, you know, just everything about it just reeked of, of attack and, and prejudiceness. You know, you just automatically assume. So I do this for 13 years. I get deployed overseas. I've been to Afghanistan. I've been to Iraq. I've got three deployments under my belt. Um, and somewhere along the lines, I guess that seed was just was planted that I'm supposed to hate these people. Um, on October 31st of 2008, uh, in Afghanistan, I lost a very close comrade of mine, Daniel Wallace. Um, we were we were thick as thieves, man. We from the day one at basic training, we just ended up everywhere together, and and we were inseparable. I started to to bond with him uh, because he was just always that laid back and cool guy that could just make everything seem okay. When when he was you know killed in action, it was. It was like there was an emptiness in my life and in my heart that I could never feel. And it just, there was an anger that took place. Um, it was probably the deepest anger that I've ever felt in my life. Uh, I was alone. I, I just, uh, it really traumatized me. Um, after that, you know, I, I was, you know, I completed that tour of duty. I, I've been blown up. I've had, uh, you know, several injuries and concussions, uh, shrapnel, um, just just a lot of you know crappy stuff that happens but you know we sign up for these things when we're in the military it's it's what we put ourselves at risk for and we know the risk when we sign up i come home and i uh stayed with the national guard for about another year and during that year is when i met my wife i was in jackson kentucky uh state active duty mission there was a really bad flood in 2009 uh we we're tasked with you know providing water rations uh, emergency relief and and rescues and things of that nature on the way home from that mission i wrecked a humvee and broke my back uh seven rolls total six barrel rolls and one end of end over end and that was my induction to opiate painkillers and when we come back we continue the story of chris buckley from hatred and anger to redemption and love his story after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Chris Buckley's story. Chris had served as a veteran, and when he came back from deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
he got in a severe accident that ended with him becoming addicted to painkillers. We pick up where we last left off. I started abusing painkillers pretty regularly after that, and eventually it just upgraded, you know, with the alcohol to methamphetamines. So five years of my life from that point was spent just the worst kind of junkie addict you could ever imagine. I, I tried to remain, like, completely focused on what was going on in my in my country. It was, uh, I guess, the, the patriotism in me, I guess. I wanted to know what was going on. And I started noticing that there was a lot of... You have to pick a side. You have to choose if you're a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative. You know, it's just there's so many choices. Everything's a choice in this country. And you're forced to pick. And if you don't pick the side that somebody wants, well, then they're going to they're gonna attack you. And you're going to become the, the, the victim or you're going to become the, the target. So uh, I started getting angry. And, and the anger from Wallace, the anger from my past, from my childhood, everything just resonated into this ridiculous decision to join the Ku Klux Klan. With my military training and... and the, the things of that nature, uh, coupled with the access of drugs and alcohol in, in that organization, I thrived. I, I rose really quickly to the rank of Imperial Nighthawk for the state of Georgia, which was like head of security, head operations, and, and things of that nature. I started to get my, my son involved. Um, like he had his little clan robe and he would go to rallies and in cross light ceremonies as we called them and uh you know i was really just starting to indoctrinate all of this hate that i had and i i was ruining another innocent life you know and, and like my wife had to be the 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 voice of reason in this she, she had to stand up and say enough you know because i was failing in my responsibilities as a father as a provider as a teacher as a husband as a protector it's like i was i was sacrificing not only myself but now i'm i'm you know dragging innocent victims into this this lifestyle of hate you know chris's life had come to a head he knew something had to give um and then I met Arno Michaelis. My wife kind of set up this intervention. Um, Arno is a former white supremacist skinhead, uh, white nationalist, who he he found his way out. Um, he's the author of a book called The Gift of Our Wounds. You know, Arno came to the house and, and you know, he, he began this daunting task of trying to, I guess, rehabilitate me. But because of the drugs, it was really hard to break through to me because I was just in this cycle of, of uh, self-worthlessness and anger and just being mad at the world and, and everybody owed me something, you know what I mean? It was, it was really exhausting. I felt like everybody in my life had betrayed me. I felt like my wife turned her back on me and stepped out, uh, you know, outside of our trust circle and, and brought in another person to, you know, I felt like I was blindsided. I felt like Arno didn't understand what I had been through. I felt like he was just talking out of his... You know, it was just, I was mad at myself for letting it get to this point to where somebody felt like they needed to give me an intervention. Um, and, and it's just like, it, the list goes on. Like, all these cliche thoughts that, that, you know, go through a person's head. And then on top of that, I had my clan... Uh, members that I was involved in were, were, you know, continuously trying to fight that tug of war battle and keep me, you know, as, as, you know, an asset for them. 
and it just it was a really a really hard struggle in my life at the time um i was already having thoughts of trying to you know get out of the organization but i mean i just i guess i guess i just needed an out and um arno he never gave up on me he uh he flew me to LA. We did some time at Homeboy Industries. Spent some time with uh, Hector Verugo, uh, Father Greg Boyle, and uh, I think that moment—it's—it's it's definitely a tie between that moment and spending some time serving the homeless at the the Midnight Mission that uh, that planted that mustard seed that just made me decide that I'm not living my life the way I need to. You know, we sat down, and, and one night when we were in L.A., we were sitting at the counter. Arno's sober, clean and sober at this time. I'm still using pretty heavy, and, and they had a, uh, a wet bar, the Airbnb that we stayed at. Like, it was stocked and loaded. So, like, I'm sitting at the counter drinking, and he's like, dude, I could just see the exhaustion on you. You need to change. You just, just give it up. You'll feel so much better. And, like, he said that, and he said exhaustion, and I was like, man, he's right. You know what? I, I am tired. This is such an exhausting lifestyle. And then just, you know, seeing that, like, no matter what I was doing, I, I was causing more for the problem. Like, I was, I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. People in his life were helping him out. But he still had a ways to go. Around this time, there was another man, the same age as Chris, who had faced his own struggles in life. His name is Haval Muhammad Kelly. I'm a Kurdish refugee from Syria. Uh, we had to flee Syria in 1996 due to the political oppression of Kurds. My father was a lawyer, and we were, had a you know, good middle-class family, and then the police stormed our house, beat my mom. My dad was in jail, and we were lucky that he got out. And the next thing they told us, if he goes back in jail for, for political oppression, then we... He would never come out, so we fled to Turkey, and next thing I know, well, you know, we were in Germany in refugee camps around 1996. You know, we applied for asylum, and we weren't allowed to stay. We had to extend our asylum every six months, and after a few years, I find out if, even if I finished high school, I couldn't go to college, so my dad applied to come to the U.S. or Canada. The United States accepted us to come as refugee Unfortunately, 9-11 happened. We lost our dream. We felt like, you know, America's not going to take a refugee family, a Muslim refugee family, after 9-11. And next thing I know, we got a call from the embassy saying, hey, you got three days to leave. We couldn't tell you about the date of the ticket because of security reasons. And we're like, oh, where are we going? It's like, oh, we're going to Atlanta, Georgia, because the weather is similar to Syria. Uh, we arrived in the United States September 25th, uh, you know, 2001, literally two weeks after 9-11 uh, in the South. You know, I was 18. My brother was 14. My mom was this four-years-old woman who never worked. You know, as a life as a refugee, you literally, like, you know, get about three to four months of rent support and some money for food. And then on your own, and my dad had a heart disease, he couldn't work. My mom couldn't find a job as a Muslim, non-English-speaking woman at that time. And so I started washing dishes as a high school senior learning English, uh, you know, 40 hours a week. And I, you know, the, the interesting part, you know, I went to Georgia State after finishing high school, and then I went to Morehouse School of Medicine. And in 2000, and uh, 
you know, 12, I started my internal medicine residency at, at Emory University, which is literally a block away from the, you know, from the restaurant where I used to wash dishes. So, and now I'm doing my cardiology fellowship, and, you know, in heart medicine training at Emory. I mean, I never worked in my life. You know, we were in Syria. My father was a lawyer. You know, we had a good life. When we were in Germany, when you're on asylum and refugee status, you're not allowed to work. So I never worked in my life. I mean, I just went to school. And when I got here, I mean, I had no choice. My brother was 14. He couldn't work illegally. And my, my mom couldn't find a job. My dad was sick. So I had no choice but to support my family. So and the first job that I was offered was washing dishes. And I don't know how to wash dishes. I mean, I don't know. Like, I just learned on, on the go. But the best thing happened to me is to wash dishes. Because, you know, it was right across from Emory, and every day I'd see all these physicians and their scrubs come in for lunch and dinner. You know, and I was a ghost to them. I was this guy who was, like, washing their dishes. But, you know, it helped me learn English. And I was washing dishes. I had the time to learn English in my head because washing dishes really is just the most numbing, you know, brain-numbing job you can do. It's very redundant, so you don't have to focus much on the job. And, you know, and it was an inspiration for me. It was like, you know, I don't want to do this all my life, so I better study and work hard. And when we come back, we'll find out how these two lives intersect. We'll bring them together. Chris Buckley's story, Haval Muhammad Kelly's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Chris Buckley's story. We left off with Chris on his road to recovery from drugs, alcohol, and leaving the Ku Klux Klan. We also heard from another man named Haval Mohammed Kelly. Chris and Haval's paths were about to cross. Let's get back to the story. So we have this man who came into the country as a Kurdish refugee. Now, he's a doctor and volunteers with veterans. One day, he decided to go to a conference where he just so happened to meet someone. Honestly, I was attending uh, an Islamophobia uh, conference at the Carter Center, and it was all about, like, you know, the, the, the increase of Islamophobia. And I didn't know, like, you know, why I was invited, because I'm a community advocate, and I focus on solutions. And I remember when I was sitting there 
this one guy with a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flop walk into the Carter Center where everyone's like, dressed up in nice suits. And there's like all the tattoos on his body and his chest. And I'm like, God, Lee, what is this guy doing here? But he sat next to me. And we became best friends from all these academic scholars and ambassadors and prominent people. I actually felt very close to him because it was Arnold. He's a guy who was a former white supremacist who, like, you know, was very prominent in those groups and and just left that group because of an experience he had with a Sikh person who changed his mind. And, you know, and he was now like, when you get over his tattoos and his looks, He's like almost like a teddy bear personality. He's like the nicest human being, full of peace and love, but he came from a place full of hate and and violence. And I was, you know, surprised. I'm like, you know, we shared our story, and he's like, you know, I'm about to go meet this guy who lives in like, you know, somewhere Somerville, Lafayette, Georgia area, who, you know, former KKK. He's thinking about leaving. His wife contacted me. And I'm like, man, I want to come with you, but I'm on call. I have to go like to the VA hospital and work. And he's like, oh, he's a veteran too. I was like, oh, perfect. Let me know how I could help him or work with him. He's like, you sure you want to talk to him? I'm like, I have seen him. I mean, I'm still in my training, but I have seen a lot of things that could shock me more than dealing with a former KKK member. And I, you know, I wasn't familiar with the KKK to that extent. He's like, oh, he's like a, a I don't know, dragon or a, I was like, I don't know the rank, but. That sounds pretty prominent to me. So, and, you know, and then the next thing you know, he connected us through Facebook messaging. You know, we started, you know, like, and then he started connecting us through the phone, and I think Chris had problems with his phone. So back and forth, I think, you know, I tried to call him, and he had some issue going on. But I was persistent. I felt like, you know, you know, maybe I should keep talking to this guy. And, you know, and the next thing you know, we start messaging each other, talking on the phone having discussion and I'm like and after the first discussion I'm like I know you came from a very you know very deep extremist place and now you're trying to find like a very neutral place and you know trying to help yourself and I understand where you're coming from because I came from you know also from you know you know a life struggle and, and you know let me know how I you know how we could be helpful with each other and so we and I also found that we share a common, you know, ground. We both had tremendous love for our country, America. We talked about the division going on right now. We talked about, like, you know, Republican versus Democrat, all these different issues. But one thing we agree on, that this the division cannot keep going because it's going to destroy this country. And we need to do something or show people if me and him could talk at least and meet up, that people could be able to do that too. And that's what it is. It was a simple friendship. A simple friendship. So Haval got connected with Chris through Arno Michaelis, the same guy that helped Chris in his intervention. Haval decided to drive up to meet Chris. And let's just say Chris was more than a little nervous. The first thing he said when he walked in the door was, hey, your blind date's here. And, uh... Like, it was funny because I, I, my wife told me, like, on the way, like, for him to get here, I was, like, really nervous. I was trying to make sure that, you know, like, we live in a really rough part of Lafayette. I mean, it's, 
I was like running around trying to make sure everything was like at least like put up and clean and like is the house gonna be okay you know is he gonna like me am I gonna make a fool out of myself and she was like Chris Chris you're married and I don't think you acted this feminine about like anything like you know like like I wish you acted like that when I was coming home from work or something she goes, just relax. She goes, you're a great person, and, and he's going to like you. But, like, I remember my emotions were, like, really high. But, like, I was just really nervous. Like, I wanted to make a good impression because, you know, I, I just respected the fact that he was coming all the way from Atlanta just to just to come and sit and have a conversation with me. And it was it was boggling. Like, it just, why, why, is, it, why is this so important? I'm starting to realize now just why it's so important. How did Haval feel as he headed to meet Chris? A lot of people think me as a Kurdish refugee, a Muslim guy, who will be afraid of someone like Chris who was part of the KKK and hated Muslim and literally went to fight Muslim, you know, as part of the military. But then I tell people he's the one who has hate toward me. So he's more afraid of me than I'm afraid of him. I don't have any hate toward him. I mean, yeah, he's part of the KKK, and yes, he's like has, you know, that that group has racist views. But I don't, you know, I, I I'm against their views, but I don't hate them. Like, you no, know, hate is a very strong emotion. You know, like to me as a physician, when I walk into the room, and as a patient, I mean, as a heart, as a doctor in training cardiology, when I walk in the room and someone has chest pain, I don't ask them the religion or the prejudice of yours. My goal is to help them to fix their heart or to find a way to fix their heart so they could feel better and their family feel better. I mean, the same way I approach any human. I don't, you know, I just give them the benefit of the doubt and see maybe my interaction with them as a regular person might change their mind. And I felt like, you know, when I walk, it was cool. And the way I treated Chris, the way I treat people, my friends, and the way I treat people in my Kurdish culture. You know, and our instinct is to connect, you know. What was the response of those around Haval to him meeting Chris? You know, and, and most of the response were very positive. I mean, like a lot of people are like, wow, I, you really must have been courageous to talk to Chris. I'm like, no, I think Chris is the one who like has more to lose talking to me because, you know, he's putting himself in a spot of being now prejudiced toward and being hated toward. You know, like he's putting him in a spot to like create more enemies. And, you know, I, you know, one thing is I heard a couple of responses from my very few, like from my, some of, you know, people like, who actually a Muslim background or immigrant, he's like, oh yeah, you had it easy, like, you know, Chris is different, maybe Chris is one simple example, like, you know, but others don't change that easily, and there's always a saying in the Bible and the Quran that says, if you save one human's life, it's like you save humanity. But I always tell people, if you could change one mind, you could change the mind of humanity, because think about it. Now Chris and his community could go back, and if he hears any prejudice toward immigrants and refugees, he'd be the one in his circle step up and be like, hey, excuse me, I know you've been thinking like that before, but let me tell you about, I know Haval, his community. They're very good people. They're not, they're not the people, we shouldn't, you know, be racist toward them because of some ignorance we have, because I know these people now. But that's how you change the mind of humanity. When we come back, we continue with the story of Chris Buckley and Haval Muhammad Kelly and their meeting and their flourishing 
as two human beings who, well, in other circumstances, would never have met, let alone come to know and love each other. Chris Buckley's story and his friend Havals continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Chris Buckley and Haval Kelly's story. Chris was a former white supremacist that became best friends with Haval, a Muslim refugee. We return to the last part of their story. After going through some training on anger management, I've learned that hate is a secondary emotion, and it's also a byproduct of anger. And once we realized what I was angry about and the emotions that were triggering that, you know, I've I've been able to work on that. Have all said something to me one time, and and, and like I remember, it, it, it'll always be something that's just a cornerstone of of my values that I'm trying to re-establish. Is it, it's hard to hate something that you know, you know, and, and that's just one of the most simplest and deepest emotional things that anybody's ever said to me. And and I don't think he realized how important that comment was. In, in my life changing the way it has. So, Chris was no longer angry, and he was no longer afraid of Haval. But how was it that Chris found his way out of the clan, considering he was so entrenched in it? The clan leader was like a best friend to me. Like, we, we was family. When I decided I was leaving, it just rubbed him the wrong way because that triggered the anger and the hatred for me because he felt like he was losing something of value to him. So he really stepped up efforts to retain me. Um, But after talking to Arno one night, you know, Arno suggested that I tell him, you know, hey, I'm done. About two weeks goes by. He just shows up at the house, you know, after not talking to me or or anything. And he goes, come on, just we'll go get a beer or something and we'll talk about this. My wife begged me not to go. She was like, don't go. Just feel this is trouble. It's just something's not right. And I knew what it was. They were going to beat my ass been a part of it a million times I knew what was coming but I wasn't going to run from because I didn't want to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life and wonder are they going to get me you know where are they going to come from um I knew that you know to face it just as I had faced going and, and requesting membership to join you know it was the honorable way out I told her I was like oh it's gonna be fine you know I mean nothing bad it's nothing I can't handle it's just Jeremy you know what I mean I get in the truck and we're driving and we're talking and uh he, he's trying to to get me you know, to, to change my mind. And when he sees that it was just, you know, I was steadfast in my decision, I remember we, we detoured off. And uh, you know, I asked him, I was like, so where are we going, man? Like, uh, town's that way. He goes, yeah, I know. I was like, oh, so we're going to do this, huh? This is how it's going to be? And, you know, we pulled into an old logging road there, and uh, he said, well, 
What I want you to do is I want you to get out of this truck right now and I want you to go tell your brothers what you decided. Out of the wood line, you know, a couple of robed clansmen stepped out. And I knew all three of them that were out there. I, I trained them all, all three of them I trained. And uh, I was like, let's get this over with. And I stepped out and we just went to tussling. And, you know, it was just, you know, they, they, they roughed me up pretty good to kick my ass. That was the last I ever heard of them. I mean, I've had some threats since then, you know, like uh, race trader, they called me an N-word lover. But I mean, other than, than the, the physical altercation, some bumps and bruises, scrapes and things of that nature, just words, but you know, words can't hurt me unless I let them. So I just know that I'm on a path that's been set out for me by a higher force. I think there's times when I still need to learn to forgive myself. Um, and that's really a slice of humble pie to, to have to eat that and, and to say that. But by, you know, by learning that it helps me to, to get over it and to, and to forgive myself. I, I have to forgive myself. I have to forgive, you know, my parents. You know, they, they did the best they could, I, I, I assume. Hardest thing about forgiveness is uh, if, you, if you ever heard the serenity prayer, you know, Lord help me to accept the things I cannot change and, and things, and, you know, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. The hardest thing in that entire prayer, the hardest word is acceptance. To accept the fact that, you know, things happened to me that didn't happen to other people, but I chose those, those paths in life. Once I learned to take accountability, accountability for me is, is it's, it's important because it, it lets me know that I have owned everything in my past that I'm ashamed of, that I've done wrong, that I've done right, and that I am proud of together, you know, and, and painted the, the bold picture of who I was and who I'm trying to be and, and working towards being. Like I said, I just had to forgive myself, and, and I'm not 100% there yet, but I'm steadily moving to that point, you know? I mean, by giving back to the community, uh, I work with a, a community outreach church here in, in the town that I live in. It's called The Haven. Um, and, you know, that was just, that was really important for my recovery, both from alcohol and drugs. You know, to sit down and just open the door to conversation. You know, a conversation with somebody is the most powerful weapon you have. Um, you can sit around and let people tell you how to think all day, but you know, there's nobody in the world that could ever change my opinion about Haval. Nothing that would happen. I consider him one of my nearest and dearest friends. If anything, I feel like, you know, I, I need forgiveness from him. Chris and Haval have become the best of friends, and they have nothing but admiration for each other. Haval volunteers his time at the, at the VA to know that, that the place that he chose to give back was so that he improved the quality of life for my fellow veteran. That made him a hero to me. And he does it for, for, for the love of just America. You know, I, I love America with all my heart. And to me, I think Dr. Haval... He should, he should be the, the face of this country, really. I mean, like, because he, he identifies and embodies everything that this country is supposed to be. Vol loves the country that opened its arms to his family. He knows that he wouldn't have been able to do it without the people 
that have helped his family along the way? I mean, you know, I, you know, like we have this perception in America, that, you know, we all have to like, you know, work very hard and we couldn't do it, you know, by working very hard and doing everything we can. But that's not the way to our success. You know, I tell people, like, I'm a product of the indirect and direct act of kindness of America. I mean, remember, I came here post-9-11 as a Muslim refugee, literally within two weeks of the attack, and the next thing I know, the Southern Christian Church, member of the Episcopal Church, you know, and all Saints Episcopal Church, they came here and they welcomed my family. And I'm, like, looking at this, I'm like, I mean, I can't believe that these Americans came and helped us, and I never experienced anything like that in the world. Like, this is what makes this country special. If these people believed in me, and it was selfless in their interest to really help me become who I am, like, here I am, I'm a, you know, I'm a cardiology fellow at Emory, my brother is a general surgery resident at East Tennessee University. We didn't make it because we only worked hard. We made it because we had people also helped us along the way, and these are the Americans who did it. So now is only the least I can do is to give back. Haval understands how far Chris has come, and couldn't be more proud. You know, and you know, like Chris has given me a lot of credit, but honestly, it's like I tell people, like I came to this country as a refugee, and I started from zero and became now like what went from zero to ninety. At a hundred, Chris, you know, went from zero, maybe from when he started like me, he went to negative 100, and now he's back to one. He doesn't get that much credit as me because I am at 90, he's at one, but he made much more faster progress than I did with what he went through, like, with his life. So it's my job to show the people, like, hey, like, as you much have seen my successes, don't forget about the success and progress in people like Chris because they actually made a faster and much more severe progress than I did. Chris and Haval try to keep in touch, and they see each other about once a month. Their friendship has become natural, not forced, and it's meant to be an example to those around them that if someone like Chris and someone like Haval can become best friends, what does that mean for the rest of us? What should our perspective be about those who are different from us? I'm a Christian, he's a Muslim, but both of our books tell us that we're supposed to lift each other up, and... You know, two completely different religions. I don't care if he's a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a Christian. He's my brother and my fellow man. You know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to lift each other up, motivate and support, and we're going to spread that as a contagion. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Faith, and what a beautiful story. Please, if you'd like, share this story with friends. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. It'll be up there on our website. Share it near and far. By the way, while you're there, sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get our five best stories each week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and share it with friends. And what a story about love, about compassion, about people from two different places coming together, and in the end, about how love triumphs over hate every time. And my goodness... Chris Buckley has taken a long road, and so has Haval Mohammed Kelly. And this, by the way, folks, is a quintessentially American story. 
And the media doesn't want to tell you these stories, folks, because we're getting along each and every day in this great country, intermarrying, taking care of one another. But of course, what the media wants to do always is find the outlier, find the hate, and put a camera close to it, and in the end, spread it. Chris Buckley's story, Aval Muhammad Kelly's story, two friends, their friendship, a blossoming and growing one here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to the arts, sports, and everything in between, and your stories, too. And this one is a special one. More than a half a century after it hit theaters, Mary Poppins is still one of the most beloved films ever. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. You may have seen the 2013 period drama Saving Mr. Banks, starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks as filmmaker Walt Disney, who attempts to obtain the screen rights to P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. Whether you've seen the movie or not, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and hear from the people who were actually there. Now, let's begin with television and screen legend Dick Van Dyke. I think all would agree that Mary Poppins truly is Walt Disney's crowning glory. Like Mary Poppins herself, the film is practically perfect in every way. The perfect creative team, perfect songwriters, the perfect cast, and the perfect person to put it all together, Walt Disney. But getting started wasn't that easy. Here's Disney animator Andreas Dejas and P.L. Travers biographer Valerie Lawson. I remember him being interviewed for it, and he said that his daughter Diane had read the books And she actually was the one who said, Dad, maybe there is something for you here. And he loved the books too. So it was something very personal to him from the start. P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins was published in 1934 in London. But it wasn't until about four years afterwards, in 1938, that Walt Disney went after the rights. Mrs. Travers, however, wasn't too keen. Allegedly, she said she'd seen other books that had been turned into movies and she didn't like the way they'd been treated by Hollywood. But Walt never, ever gave up on a good idea. And in 1944, he tried again. Walt sent his brother to try and convince Pamela, who was in New York, that she would release the rights to him. But she wouldn't. Now, over the next few years, there are several offers made and as many refusals. And these... these conversations they had are all recorded. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes, and this is what I want to make very clear. The book should be read very carefully for atmosphere. It is integral to the book and to the story that Mary Poppins should never be impolite to anybody. You brought your references, I presume, may I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Is that so? Here's song composer and lyricist for Mary Poppins, Richard Sherman, and film historian Brian Sibley. No, 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 don't make it like that. There were so many hesitations in, in her 
acceptance of the idea that the father and mother change and become warmer and more loving. She said, not a change of heart because he's always been sweet, but worried with the cares of life. I think she had 30 days to consider. On the 30th day, she relented, but she had to be the consultant. It seems unbelievable after all that had gone on, but almost 20 years from the point when Walt Disney had set out on this quest, Mrs. Travers agrees on certain conditions that the film might be made. We were considering a number of people to play the part of Mary Poppins. We had uh, uh, Mary Martin, and we were thinking of Betty Davis, and then we were also thinking of Angela Lansbury. But uh, it wasn't until one evening when the Ed Sullivan show had an excerpt from Camelot, and a young woman named Julie Andrews and Richard Burton saying, what do the simple folk do? And I called my brother. I said, Bob, oh my God, she's absolutely perfect. Next day we walked into DeGrati's office and Don DeGrati says, did you see the Ed Sullivan show last night? I mean, it was just wow. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, to, we want to see Walt. Here's Tony Walton, Mary Poppins' costume and set designer, and his then wife, Mary Poppins herself, Julie Andrews. P.L. Travers had approval pretty much of everything in her contract, so Walt said that Julie would need to be auditioned or passed by the author of the stories. I met her very briefly in London. She, I think, was fond of me and, and approved of my doing Poppins. Uh, I know she said that I had the nose for it. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. She was quite happy with Julie Andrews, though. She was more than happy. She loved her performance. Roomy for everyone, gather around. The constable responsible. Now, how does that sound? Walt Disney was reading in a newspaper an article about what people thought about the cinema today, and he came across a comment by Dick Van Dyke which said that he personally did not like the way in which modern-day movies were trending towards, as he put it, dirty pictures. Now, this was something that Walt himself felt very, very strongly about, and he thought, oh, this man's a man after my own heart. So he had a look at some of Dick's work, and he asked Dick to come over to the studio. They met. Instantly, they liked one another, and almost instantly, Walt was offering him the part to play Bert. Can't put me finger on what lies in store. I feel what's to happen. All happened before. I had only been in one movie myself. So I was about as green as anything. And uh, Julie, despite the fact it was her first film, was perfectly professional. She had a camera personality. She knew where the camera was. She knew where the lights were, as if she had done it all her life. She was thoroughly professional from the beginning. Of all the wonderful things that Walt was coming up with for this movie, one of the greatest moments in my songwriting career was we had finished this song, Jolly Holiday, and we were playing it for the first time for Walt, and Don DeGrati had developed a bunch of beautiful sketches for this thing. And there's a section in the song where four waiters were going to come out, and Walt said, hold it. And he said, Waiters have always reminded me of penguins. So they made them penguins. That would have never occurred to any human being except Walt Disney. He had this wonderful, whimsical way about him. 
Walt said, as a matter of fact, we'll animate everything in that sequence except for the principal characters. You know, we can do that. We have this sodium vapor process that Ub Iwerks has created. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating. It was a high point of my life when I saw that finally put together with the real animation in there. What a masterful job it was. Walt took all of his little bag of tricks that he developed over 35 years and put, put them into this picture. I did a glorious die, right as a morning in my, I feel like And I when we come back, we'll continue the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American Stories. The grass so green or a bluer sky. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chimney. How sweet is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chimney. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mary Poppins. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I think the one thing that comes off with Disney movies of the old days, and especially Walt himself, was his love of innocence. And I think that's what Walt revered in We Children, and that's what he wanted to send us away with still, and he succeeded. Ellen, we had the most glorious meeting. When we were casting the film, Walt immediately said, I know the perfect person to play the mother, and that is Glynis Johns. She's just absolutely right. And we all agreed, she's absolutely perfect. Gracious, Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. What will Mr. Banks say? He's going to be cross enough as it is to come home and find the children missing. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I said to Walt, it might give me an incentive if I could have my own little number. Walt reached over and said, but Glennis, the boys are just finishing a great number for you. You're going to love it. Wait till you hear it. So he says, all right, all right. I'll have to hear it, and if, 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 I, if I like it, then I might, I might consider doing the part. So she left. Walt said, get on this thing. you, you got to write something for her. But well, we had this song that we had written called Practically Perfect. So we said, hmm, that could be a suffragette song. By the time I got back to the Chateau Marmont, the telephone was ringing, and it was Walt. He said, listen to this. I heard the first few bars of Sister Suffragette. Clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Glynis was interested then. When I think now of how nearly I didn't do it, it's amazing because I'm so proud to be part of it. It was the only time I've ever been working on a project where at the end of each day, I walked away saying, this is so good. I knew from the very beginning, after every day shooting, how good that movie was going to be. 
Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman. We asked Walt if we could have half an hour of his time, and uh, we played a few song ideas we had. He was very impressed with what we were coming up with, and uh, at the end of this meeting, uh, he said, play me that, uh, that Bird Woman song again. Come feed the little birds, show them you care. It was about charity, and about giving somebody something that they didn't ask for, but that they could use. Love. Please, may we feed the birds? Waste your money on a lot of ragamuffin birds? Certainly not. Feed the birds, toppins a bag. Walt, from the time he heard it, just loved that song. Never said it to us, but he would, like a Friday afternoon, he'd call us up and say, come over, and 5.30, 6 o'clock, we'd come over to his office, and he'd say, play it. <laughs> and I'd play Feed the Birds and sing it for him. Feed the birds, toppins a bag. And he'd, yep, that's what it's all about. Have a good weekend, boys, and then he'd send us home. He loved that song. It was his favorite. Here's Richard Sherman, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke. And Walt Disney gave that tuppence a bag with the lady who played the bird woman. Her name was Jane. Uh, Jane Darwell. And what happened was Walt said, I know the perfect person to play this part, if she'll do it. She's, she's old and frail, oh. but I want her to do it. And Walt... Was that is, the last thing she ever did? Yes, it was. And, mm. and uh, she died soon after she did it. But oh. they sent a, a special car for her. They treated her like a star. Walt came down to the soundstage oh. to, to see her. She was so yeah. thrilled and happy. She cried because she said Walt Disney was so kind to her. That was giving that... Tuppence. Tuppence of bag. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. The musical style was really boiled beef and carrots, boiled beef and carrots, an old English uh, folk song. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And, and any old iron, any old iron. It's uh, silly little songs that they wrote in those years, and uh, we wanted to feel like that, and yet be original and, and totally our own. When the film was released, audience response was overwhelming, and it became an instant phenomenon. It was the biggest hit in the history of the studio. Mary Poppins had worked her magic on the world. Mary Poppins premiered on August 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Cinema on Hollywood Boulevard. They tell me this could be one of your biggest pictures, Mr. Disney. Well, we... I haven't retired yet. I'm so nervous I'm about to die. It's such an exciting night. This is the night of all. The red carpet, big we had the big tent out. Yeah, right. yeah. And we had a big garden party built out on the, on on the, the back, yes. The back. And the reaction was wonderful. <laughs> what an ovation I got at the end. The reviews were fantastic. I never read reviews like that. They were all glowing, th thrilling reviews. It was a remarkable success, a very, very big popular success, which I mean, that, that is the greatest thing I think anybody could have, seeing people enjoying and laughing and crying to your work. It's just the one, most wonderful thing in the world. For the best actress in a musical or comedy, the nominees are... At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh brought it up, but we suddenly realized that if, if, 
Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins. The winner is Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time. And I took an enormous gulp and said, Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. Everybody screamed. It was like a thunderous scream. And everyone's laughing, including Mr. Warner. So I was home and safe. And that was her little sweet revenge, I think. It was great. Congratulations. Thank you very much. When a few weeks later, the Academy Award nominations were announced, Mary Poppins received an amazing 13 nominations. Among the nominations include Best Picture, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, Visual Effects, Original Song, and Score. There probably aren't words to describe your emotion. Now, 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 gentlemen, please. On the contrary, there's a very good word. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> the magic of it had escaped me, pounding it out every day. When it was all put together, there was. It, there was something else besides what we put into it. I don't know what serendipity came along, but there was a wonderful magic aura about that movie that nobody expected. And it's just as I say, every time I see the film, I think it's better and better. And now each generation is going to enjoy it in a different way. Tom Kite needs a proper tale, don't you think? It was such a contribution to family entertainment. And I, I know that it's going to be around for a, for a long time. It, it stands as the perfect Walt Disney movie, as far as I'm concerned. I had the pleasure, the honor, really, of, of being asked to, to uh, help dedicate the Walt Disney statue at Disneyland. It was his 100th birthday, and so I was, they have to do that, and they said, would you play a couple of songs? And I said, okay. And I played a couple of things, and I said, I'm now gonna play Walt Disney's favorite song, and it's just for him. And I sang and played Feed the Birds, Tuppence the Bag. I finished my song, and I blew a kiss to Walt, statue like that, I said, Happy birthday, Walt. And I got down. And they told me afterwards, just toward the end, out of the clear blue sky, one bird flew down right over where I was playing and off again into the clouds. Well, that moves me very much. That was Walt saying thanks. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter. Just give us your email address and we'll give you five of our best stories each week, every week. And thanks to the folks at MyPillow.com for providing sponsorship and support to this show. And go to MyPillow.com and get their pillows. My wife and I use them. And my goodness, sleep's been better ever since. Just go to MyPillow.com and type in stories. Give it a shot. I promise you, you'll sleep better. It's helped me. It's helped my bride. And my goodness, as we go out, we'll be listening to the great Julie Andrews singing the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American Stories. Toppins, 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 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, from faith to science, and everything in between. And we love to hear your stories, too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. And it can be about just about anything that matters to you, your life, your family, and your community. This next story is about a man named Bert Rossica. Bert was born in South Philly, and his story, The Light in the Hallway, picks up with his dad moving his pharmacy business and his family to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. The house was new. We just moved from the city to the suburbs. It was a happy house. It was a happy life. When I was five years old, life seemed so effortless. No adversity, no melodrama, only happiness. Now that I am a man, I frequently ask myself, what did dad do to make it all seem that way? It couldn't have been easy. There had to be pressures. A new house, a new store, a new business, two mortgages, And business was slow at first. One night, I woke up from my sleep and I was lying awake in my bedroom. It was blue and it smelled new, just like the rest of the house. I remember seeing the ceiling light. I always stared at the ceiling light in the hallway from my bed. It was square and black and it looked like a colonial type of light. Everything in the house was colonial. I was thinking about its newness for whatever reason, I don't know, I'm just lying there. When dad came home from the store, it was late. I didn't know exactly what time it was, but I knew it was late. The store closed at nine o'clock, but I knew it was much later than that. He usually stayed and did paperwork after the store closed. There was no one else to do it, so he did it. After standing on his feet for 12 hours, he stayed and did paperwork. It had to be done, so he did it. You do what has to be done, he always said. He didn't just say it, though. He lived it. So that night, as usual, he stayed and did paperwork. When he arrived home, Mom had his place set at the kitchen table and had dinner waiting for him. I lay still in my bed, listening. I could see in my mind's eye, Mom and Dad sitting at the table. Dad at his place at the head, Mom next to him on his left. It's where they always sat so they could be close to one another. At this time of night, it was just the two of them. But they still sat in their usual places. Only Dad ate. Mom had already eaten hours earlier with us. She ate with us while Dad was still working. This, again, was typical. They were talking. And then Mom asked Dad how many scripts he filled that day. Script is shorthand for prescriptions the lifeblood of any apothecary business. When she asked the question, I detected anxiety in her voice. 
I was too young to know exactly what anxiety was, but I detected it nonetheless. I detected something. Seventeen years later, I would hear that same anxiety in Mom's voice again as Dad lay dying of cancer. Mom would walk in the room, call his name, not knowing if he would be conscious enough to respond. I didn't know it when I was five, but it was that very same anxiety that I heard. It wasn't as severe that night that I'm lying awake in my bed listening to Mom and Dad at the kitchen table, but it was there just the same. Then I heard Dad answer Mom's question. One word. Two, he said, gently. That's all he said. As I lie in my bed, I thought about how many prescriptions was good or a lot. Two did not seem to be good. Even at five years old, I knew that. Then I heard something I had never heard heard before and it scared me. Mom began to cry. I never heard mom cry. She was always happy. Our house was always happy. And then I began to think, am I the only one awake? I thought as I lay there in my bed, what is Sue doing? What is Nan doing? They must be asleep. So it was only me and dad and mom, and she was crying. I became frightened, but it didn't last long. I then heard dad say softly to mom, it will be all right. I could almost hear him take her hand. It would be all right. It was just the way he said it. He had stopped eating. They were silent. I was silent. I was listening. I knew she believed him. I believed him. The way he said it, I stopped being frightened. And soon I fell back to sleep. I fell back to sleep, staring at the new light in the new hallway, as I always did. Rarely, if ever, do I remember waking up at night as a child. Sleep always came easily and soundly to me. It's a blessing. It still does, actually. But that night was different. Apparently, God wanted me to hear that conversation. For that, I am grateful. It was a simple yet profound exchange. It was a simple scene. A man and a wife, late at night, after a long day's work, alone or so they thought. I will never forget that night. I wonder if dad and mom remembered it. Dad's gone, but I think I, I will ask mom the next time I see her. Or maybe not. If I do, it will certainly make her cry. Anytime I mention dad, it makes mom cry. She misses him so. When I recall that night, I think about how much mom and dad loved one another. It always warms my heart. It was a gift I was awake that night, a gift for which I will always be grateful. As weeks and months and years passed, 
I grew to understand Dad was right about what he said that night. Everything did, in fact, turn out all right. And the thing that gets me to this very day is he made it all look so easy. And thank you to Bert Rossica in such a stark, simple story. And we've all been there as kids. And my goodness, as adults, we know it too. Again, send us your stories. They don't have to be big ones, folks. And trust me, this is a big story in its own way. Listen to the resonance and the, and the holding back of tears, practically, of a grown man recounting something he remembers from when he was five. When he was five. So again, send your stories to Our American Network. That's Our American Network. And we will put them to music, set them to a, to a track, and do what we do best is create radio documentaries. And you know, this is more than podcasts, and you know that because you've listened to podcasts, folks. And this is something very different. We're proud to do it. We have a great team that does it every day. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll put our team to work and get these stories back to you. Bert Rossica's story, his mother and father's story, a real love story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we like to periodically dig into the lives of business owners, business founders particularly. And we like to do that because, well, it's important to understand their lives and they don't go around whining or complaining or describing the difficulties they face, the ups and the downs. One thing's for sure, towns can't survive without prospering places of employment. It's where tax bases come from. It's where meaning comes from. Without work and meaningful work, what is life? And so you're not going to hear stories like this anywhere else in the media. And we don't shine it up. But we just tell the stories. And this one today comes from Walter Blessy. He's the founder of Blessy Marine Services, who has over 700 employees. And they move our nation's oil and chemical products on our waterways. We've previously brought you his story as a part of our American Dreamers series, but today he brings us the story of a crisis that his company faced. This is Walter Blessy, um, owner and founder of Blessy Marine speaking. Um, I just want to tell a little story about life and appreciation that touched me greatly. Back some years ago, maybe four so, um, our biggest customer in the marine business that charters tows and barges from us came to us and wanted us to lower rates as the market had collapsed. We had seven years left on our contract um, with no outs for them other than our non-performance. I agonized over what to do. And 
we ultimately offered them a $3 million per year reduction. That wasn't good enough uh, for them. They wanted a, a reduction around $7.5 to $8 million per year with seven years left on the contract. I had a lot of sleepless nights um, deciding what to do. Finally, I decided to redo the contract at that lower rate, and I was very nervous. I ran the numbers, and I felt like there's a good chance the market was horrible. I felt there was a good chance that uh, we would not make money for the next seven years. We would just pay the bills. And uh, I felt like paying the bills was the most important thing as we went to zero debt. Um, I then suspended our 401k match, which would hurt me because I, I love our people. And, you know, no one, I explained the situation to the company and no one left. Everybody stayed aboard. And we, we also said, did some reductions in, um, in our health insurance. And as we progressed, I saw that we were still making money and able to pay the debts, and we could be down to zero debt at the end of seven years. And so back this year, about the third year of this situation, I reinstated the 401k match and um, reinstated some, some benefits that we'd suspended. And I sent this following email out to the company um, in recognition of this. As we marched to zero debt, I and my family want to extend our personal thank you for your belief and commitment to our family, our team, and to our values. Two years ago, I was overcautious with lowering contract prices in the bad market. Imagine you have seven years left on a contract. They want you to lower your prices by $8 million a year. You bet that I was cautious. Well, the fog has lifted, and we're doing fine. Not as well, but still doing fine. In one of my last emails, I alluded that going forward, we want to do something nice for our people. I was thinking that we would do such in several years. Well, this summer, we had some guests up to our place in Montana. and We're out on four wheels, and one of the guys in my four-wheeler asked me what I wanted to accomplish before I left this earth. And I said, the first thing I want to do is do really nice things for our people that have been with us on the journey of life. And I started thinking about that. I was planning on doing something as the debt went down to zero. But um, I thought more and more about it. And I said, you know what? I feel comfortable enough that we can do something sooner. So I sent this email out um, in November 2019, we'll give everyone who has been with us 10 years or more $10,000. You'll still get your bonus, but I want to say thank you for being with us and being having faith in us. So that's what I did. I said, I am humbled by my responsibility for ultimately being responsible for you and your family's well-being. I assure you that my son-in-law's Clark and Daniel share my values and will continue our culture in the same standard after I depart this earth, hopefully many years from now. Happy Labor Day. God bless. Bless you proud. Stay the course. Walter. 
Well, the responses I got really choked me up. Um, so many people sent me nice, nice things um, and responses, and I'd, I'd like to share some of those with you. And um, I won't say the person's last name, I'll just say their first name. Well, this person, um, a lady um, that is taller than me, said this, Wow, little shit, to say that I'm proud of you is not enough. You truly are an earth angel walking on this planet, and I don't say that lightly. There is this light inside of you, and you care so much about people without having any type of greed or fear about scarcity, and that's exactly the way true leaders on this planet live. You've touched so many people's lives in a way that I can't put into words. I love you, little shit, and that is just a human-to-human -human love, nothing more, the way I love my closest friends. Coco. Whoa. Oh. Oh, boy. Next one. Walter, I've been so stressed about my financial situation, I've tried to sleep the entire weekend away. But during my waking time, I've been praying and having faith that God has this, that he would get me through this challenge, knowing he has gotten me through the way worse than money issues. This email from you has turned it around for me. You are truly God sent into my life because without your generosity and my job, I'm not sure what kind of situation I may have myself into. Thank you for my heart. I sit crying tears of hope and tremendous gratitude. Love to you and your family. Regards, Wendy. Wow. Next comment. Walter, I can't even begin to explain how proud I am to work for the Blessy family. I myself have grown so much in the time here. The old man, that was his father, told me a long time ago that blessing would be our future. He was so right about this. Troy. WB, I think this is an incredible gesture. I will not be in the recipient group as I will only have been here nine years as of November 19, but I think the acknowledgement of efforts of long-tenured folks is amazing. Good work. Bo. Your generosity simply amazes me, and you never cease to amaze me. Your phone call caught me off guard, and now your email has floored me. I'm always grateful to work for you and your company. As I stated on a phone conversation, I was not upset by your measures to be cautious. I understood because you have been so generous to me and my family in the past, and that you were doing what was best for our company's future. I am so thankful for this bonus. I believe you are doing exactly what the Lord put you here to do. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your blessed family. It is a great feeling to bleed green. Please give Jane Ann a hug for me. She is also an amazing person. You're a very lucky man to have found such an amazing woman. I love you both for being part of my life. Forever grateful, Maureen. So, as I read those responses, I stumbled a bit because I was tearing up. Um, you know, I found that in life, um, running a company, being responsible for all these people's folks are going to understand if you're sincere or not. They're going to understand if you're a BSer or not. And um, 
in the in the marine business particularly, um, you have to have people that care. Uh, a captain leaves with his boat and his crew. He has millions of dollars of product, millions of dollars of equipment, and he's gone. He's not in the office where you can look at him. He's out anywhere from St. Paul, Minnesota, to Brownsville, Texas, to St. Mark's, Florida. So we have 75 boats and about 180 barges, and it takes a team to make it happen. And I, I wanted to exp express that. So having said that, I will end, but um, it's been an amazing journey, and um, hopefully it's not over and a long way to go. So thank you, and um, if, as an employer, be a good boss, be a loving boss, be a caring boss. And great job, as always, uh, to Alex for getting that done. Alex pointed out to me just a second ago that there were many, many more emails on Walter's desk. By the way, you heard him mention that there was debt in the company and they were looking forward to paying that down. $700 million worth of capital investments in that business. That money went to buy barges. Those were companies that employed people. Towboats. Those companies employed people. And around those businesses were restaurants and waitresses. So we love to tell the story of the ecosystem of free enterprise. Walter Blessy's story, in a way, America's business story, here on Our American Stories.